All right, everybody, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If you're, if you're new to Remnant, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're a group of people who realize that we have to surrender more so we can be transformed by the Word of God. And, and the more we surrender, the more God changes us. And the more we change, the more we realize we don't want to go back and be the person we were before we met Christ. And so we come here to learn how to surrender more so we can be changed more. And we celebrate and worship what Jesus has done in our life. And, and we're in the middle of a series um, on the book of Revelation. The, the revelation is Jesus himself. And the book at the end of the Bible tells us what's to come. And so we're learning about what God says is going to happen in our future so that we can prepare our hearts to be ready for the return of Christ. Now, we are right now at the midpoint of the tribulation. There's a seven-year tribulation. We are right in the middle. Well, technically, we are where it says you are here. We're before the rapture of the church. But in the scriptures, we're between the beginning sorrows and the great tribulation. So far, the first three and a half years have been difficult, but okay. And now it's about to change. We're going to move from the uh, seal and trumpet judgments into the bowl judgments. And right now in the scriptures, John is just taking a pause to introduce to us some of the people, some of the players that are going to play out in end times. Last week we learned about the dragon and the war in heaven and the fact that Satan is defeated by the blood of Christ and by our testimony. Now John turns to further clarify the one who's going to rise to power and mimic Christ. We're going to dive deeper today into the person who's known as the Antichrist. The one who mimics Christ but is sent by Satan. John calls him the beast of the sea. God tells us to be careful. Tells us he can fool even the elect if that were possible. So let's dive in. Revelation 13 verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, those are crowns, on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. Many people today love the ocean. But can I just tell you, Jewish people in the first century didn't. To them, the waters always represented dark and evil and horrible things. In fact, at one point, the, the Jewish nation had an army, but they, or had a navy, but they actually hired other people to come sail for them because they didn't want to go out on the water. To them, water is a sign of evil and chaos. From the place identified with evil and chaos and resisting God, a beast comes forth. Ancient Greek word here gives the idea of a wild, dangerous animal. Because John calls him a beast and not a dragon, we know this is someone different than Satan. Satan was described as a dragon in the previous chapter. So the distinction is important. In Scripture, dragon is Satan. The beast that comes from the sea, we will learn soon, is the Antichrist. Revelation 12, we have a dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. And now in Revelation 13, we have an antichrist with seven heads and ten horns, but he has ten crowns. So we're going to look and see what we understand. First, the, the heads signify dominion. The head is naturally looked upon as the chief, the controlling, guiding part of the body. 
Seven, we've seen, is the number of universality, of completeness, of totalness. Seven heads represent the fact that this beast will have universal dominion. In the second place, horns are a type of power. An animal with two horns like a bull is very powerful, but an animal with ten, that's a powerful animal. It's a sign of totality. Um, it's the purpose. The ten horns denote that this person is going to have far more power and plenty of power that he needs to carry out his task. Diadems or crowns, they represent the authority or the worship or the praise given to these people uh, by man. So both of these, the dragon and the antichrist, have incredible power and will have dominion over the control of the entire world. Now, it's going to be easy to get lost here in the first part of this sermon, so we're going to walk through some scriptures. But what I want you to see in general is that there were three visions, three dreams, if you will, all who saw the same thing or something similar. And we're going to walk through those because it helps us understand what John is seeing in Revelation. I talk all the time about how when you see something in Revelation, you probably have seen it somewhere else in Scripture before. We talked at the very beginning of the series. Remember I said um, that the final chapter of the Bible makes no sense unless you understand the ones that lead up to it. So, do you remember when Daniel was in Babylon? About 600 years before Christ arrived? There are two events in Daniel's life that we're going to focus on today. The first one, if you remember, was he had to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember that? Nebuchadnezzar looked at his wise men and he said, I had a dream, you have to tell me what it was, and oh, by the way, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is. <laughs> Daniel comes in, he says, I can't do it, but God can. And everybody goes, wow, that was amazing. He interpreted the dream. Do you remember what the dream was? Good, I'm going to read it to you. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, O king of kings. Look at, before we get here, look at how he describes Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. And into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you will rise after you, and a third kingdom of bronze will rule over all the earth. There shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And then he continues later, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Daniel says, look, King Babylon, your dream, you are the head of gold. After you comes another nation weaker than yours, but surprisingly is going to overthrow you. Well, we know that's exactly what happened with the Persians, called the Meadow Persians. After that comes a nation who's going to be identified with bronze, and they're going to destroy the Persians. Well, we know that's the Greeks and Alexander the Greek. And then a final nation of iron is going to come, and that's the Roman uh, Empire, the last time the world was conquered by anybody, the Roman Empire. 
This empire is going to bring others to, to the end, and then there's going to be a last empire that's going to destroy all of them and list forever. Now, here's the thing. He interprets the king's dream. And we go, wow, that's interesting. He nails human history before it ever happens. Don't miss that. 600 BC, he says, okay, well, you're the Babylonians, you're the biggest game in town, but you're going away, the Persians are going to beat you, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Got it right, no misses there. So in Daniel 2, he interprets the king's dream, but in Daniel 7, he has his own dream. Here's what he says. He too saw beasts coming out of the sea, each one different from the other. One was like a lion with eagle's wings. The second was like a bear and it had three ribs in its mouth and it was devouring. A third was like a leopard that had four heads and dominion was given to it. And the fourth beast, terrifyingly dreadful and extremely strong. It was different from the others because it had ten horns. So now with Daniel's dream, he doesn't know how to interpret it. There are four uh, beasts coming up out of the... He sees them. And so he turns to an angel, Daniel 7, 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the vision in my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Notice they come out of the earth. In John and Revelation, we're going to see them come out of the one come out of the water. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and process the kingdom forever, forever and ever. The first of Daniel's four beasts is like a lion. It had the wings of an eagle. As Daniel watches, the wings are torn off this beast, and the creature stands erect like a man, and a human mind is given to it. Later, the angel who interprets the dream tells Daniel, the four great beasts are four kings that arise from the earth. This first beast is the representative of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Its rise to human-like status reflects Nebuchadnezzar's deliverance from a beastly existence and his insight into the true nature of God. The second beast in Daniel's vision is like a bear. It was raised up on one of its side and had three ribs in between its teeth. A voice tells the second beast to devour flesh until it's satisfied. This beast represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The raising up of one side indicates that one of the kingdom's parts, the Persians, would be dominant. The three ribs in the creature's mouth symbolize that nations are going to be devoured by the Medo-Persians. And that's exactly what happened to three nations, Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. The third beast that Daniel sees is like a leopard, except it has bird-like wings on its back and four heads. This beast is given authority to rule. The third beast represents Greece, an empire known for the swiftness of its context and its conquest. It just flies in. The four heads are predictive of what will happen when Alexander the Great dies. He dies and his four kids can't divide up the kingdom. They argue and fight to the point they destroy each other. The final beast that Daniel sees rising out of the sea is the most dreadful, terrifying, frightening, and very powerful, he says. 
This fourth beast has bronze claws and large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left, totally annihilating its prey. The fourth beast has ten horns. This creature represents the Roman Empire, a mighty kingdom that indeed crushed all of its enemies. So we see Babylonia, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and Rome was the last empire to dominate the world. So Daniel's vision of four beasts give us a prophetic look into the future of world events. Looking back from our perspective, we see these as history and we can see, of course, that's what happened. But some of Daniel's vision is yet to come. That brings us where Daniel's attention is drawn to this fourth beast. And he ponders the meaning of the, of the ten horns. Daniel 7, 8, As I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things, blasphemous things. You see, then a smaller horn, a horn is a, a nation, a, a, a group of people. This small horn, a world power begins to grow. It's small at first. You don't really notice it. It's in the midst of the other ten. They're much more powerful. The little horn emerges from the beast. Three of the original horns are plucked out by the roots. Most believe that there will be a ten world, uh, I'm sorry, a ten nation uh, reestablishment of the old Roman Empire. That this small horn, this small country, this leader from nowhere will show up and three of those leaders will be destroyed. Daniel sees this little horn has eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that speaks boastfully. The fourth beast, like a man, was authority calling out God. Blasphemous, arrogant, boastful things. With the power of the nations, authority on earth, and one who worships the dragon, Satan. Fortunately, Daniel's vision doesn't end there. Daniel 7, 9, I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out front before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. Jesus, the Ancient of Days, comes to judge. The books are open. The Antichrist, though, is still blaspheming him. Next verse, I looked and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This proudful, boastful leader from a small nation continues to blaspheme God until the end of times and the ancient of days is actually ready for judgment. It's then destroyed. So with that vision, that understanding of Daniel's vision, we can now go forward to Revelation 13. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear, its mouth like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave power and his throne and great authority. The vision that John sees 
is one beast that incorporates all the other beasts that were in Daniel's dream. The leopard, the bear, the lion, and one like man. Notice this beast doesn't come from the earth, he comes from the sea. Place of evil and horror. And these dreams are incredible prophecy. Identifying the world empires before they ever happened. Daniel saw four. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But now at the end of times, God reveals seven kingdoms through John's vision. All of them combined at the end, representing all the world kingdom, all empires who've ever dominated the world. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and the one we haven't seen yet, the empire of the Antichrist. All fallen nations against God's people who enforced its demand with coercion and authority. There have been seven nations, seven empires that have ruled the world, seven heads, dragon, ten horns, plenty of power. The beast, the Antichrist, is the culmination of all the previous giving him praise and worship. He'll have authority and power over the world. He's the summation of all the beasts of Daniel and then some. Every nation that has been against God is represented in this beast. All human power, all human endeavors, all human evil. He rises up from chaos and darkness and he receives the full power and authority of Satan. Revelation 13, 2. And one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. You see, Satan is a great counterfeiter. He mimics Christ. And here we're going to see him try to mimic the resurrection of Christ. There are two common thoughts about this head wound. One is that the Antichrist will actually have a real JFK kind of experience. That everybody will see him get shot in the head or, or hurt or injured in the head. And then miraculously, everybody will assume he's dead. He'll come, quote, back to life. He'll begin the process of convincing people that he has risen from the dead, has come back from life, and begin to set people up for the idea that he is God. The second thought is that this is the wound promised way back in Genesis. You'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. It's possible this head wound is from the cross. That what Jesus did on the cross crushed his head, but now it appears the Antichrist may actually survive it. I think it's both, actually. I think there's going to be a moment where the Antichrist gets injured and tries to present himself as a risen Christ, and I think also he suffered a major head wound at the cross. Verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? The entire world begins to worship this antichrist, this beast. And because they're worshiping the beast, they're worshiping Satan, the dragon. We see him counterfeiting the worship of God. As people bow down and worship this beast and bow down before his government, it may be that they don't know they're bowing down to Satan himself. But it's the worship of Satan nonetheless. They clearly worship both the beast and dragon, 
But their worship of the dragon may actually be unknowing. Though Satan worship becomes more and more popular each year, it's still only a tiny fraction of people who actually worship Satan. But this is because people expect Satan to appear with ugliness and horror. And that's wrong. Most people worshiping Satan don't know it. He doesn't appear demonic. He appears like you want him to appear. Anything that you put in front of God, in front of his worship, your pride, your arrogance, your money, whatever it is, anything, another God, another dream, a, a hobby, anything, you're worshiping Satan. You're, you're taking Jesus off the throne and replacing him with something else in charge of your life. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Most people who are following Satan have no idea that's what they're doing. If you're not following Jesus, you're following Satan. He doesn't appear as a dragon with teeth that drip blood. He appears as somebody you like, somebody who agrees with you. The world is going to be amazed at the power of the beast. They'll believe he's so powerful that he could never be conquered. For a time, the beast, the Antichrist, is going to look like the greatest ever world winner. God's people will appear to be complete losers for a short time as they're martyred for the faith. Most of the world will buy his lies. They'll worship Satan and the one Satan sent, the Antichrist. Charles Swindoll was insightful on this point. Here's what he says. How like Satan, the one who disguises himself as an angel of light, will provide the world with a copycat Christ to match all their man-centered ideas of personality, politics, and power. No wonder the world will be swept off its feet by this attractive, persuasive figure. In fact, we're told the world will worship the dragon and through their worship of the beast. In this rabid fit of hyper-nationalism will make Hitler's Third Reich look like a high school sporting event. The world will cry out, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war against them? Satan desires to be worshipped and treated like God. He always has, he always will. Revelation 13, 5, and the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Notice something here. The beast is given a mouth. Wouldn't have it if God didn't give it to him. The Antichrist utters blasphemy. The beast is still under the authority of God. He does nothing unless God says it's okay. He's been given authority. He's been given the right to, to blaspheme God for 42 months, three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. The last half of the tribulation, Satan is set loose to do whatever he wants to do on earth. 
great tribulation. He utters blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. And note this, they say his dwelling are those who dwell in heaven. I think that's the raptured church. Hmm. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Conquer, the the word overcome, it, it also means conquer. It doesn't mean that the beast can overcome the faith of the saints, but he can destroy their physical lives, and he will. This is a time of great martyrdom the last half of the tribulation. And by all appearances, it's going to look like God's people are being defeated. But conquering God's people is not going to satisfy the insatiable appetite of Satan and his Antichrist. He's going to be given authority over the people to redeem every tribe, people, language, and nation. In fact, the scriptures say that all who live on earth will worship him unbelieving humanity on a worldwide scale will worship the beast as God, mocking the authentic worship that belongs to Christ. You see, this beast imitates glory and authority and worship of which only Christ is worthy. All of this and more, Satan, the beast, and earth dwellers will do, but it will only be for a short time. The Lamb Names written before the foundation of the world were set. This deeply meaningful title for Jesus reminds us that God's plan of redemption was set in place before he ever created beings who needed to be redeemed. God wasn't surprised by the fall of Adam or any other evidence of fallen nature of man. He isn't making this up as he goes along. He ordained this before he even put the foundations together of the world. God the Son has a relationship of love and fellowship with God the Father before the foundation of the world was ever created, John 17. The work of Jesus was ordained before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1. God chose his redeemed before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Names are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world, Revelation 17. The kingdom of heaven was prepared for the redeemed before the foundation of the world, Matthew 25. Seven times in the New Testament, believers are identified as those whose names are written in the book of life. This book of life belongs to the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. It's a registry in which God inscribes the names of those chosen for salvation before the foundations of the world. Unlike unbelievers... The elect will not be deceived by the Antichrist, and they will not worship him. Antichrist will not be able to destroy a believer's faith. For the Lord promised, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Believers have had been in the keeping power of God since before creation. Before they were ever created, they were under his watchful hand. Hmm. 
Revelation 13, 7, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. In other words, if you surrender the Antichrist, I can't stop it. I can't help you. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. In other words, if your faith requires that you lay down your life, then lay it down. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Notice that John speaks directly to us at the end of this passage. He warns us not to be taken captive for us to endure in our faith as saints. Captivity and being slain. Why is he warning us? We know about the Antichrist. We've read about him all the time. Well, actually, I'm afraid we don't. He'll make war with the saints. Who are they? Those are the Jewish believers that are still on earth during the last half of the tribulation. The ones who are going to flee at the abomination of desolation when very soon this Antichrist, this beast from the water, goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. The Antichrist will have authority over everyone. He will conquer and murder them. And incredibly, he'll be loved for it. God tells us this is a time of endurance for the believers. Many will be beheaded because of their unwillingness to take the mark or bow to the Antichrist. Jesus foretold of this, there will be great tribulations such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anybody says, look, he's, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonder so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Let me just begin to encourage you. Choose this day to never worship a man your entire life on earth. When Jesus comes back, he will be God. You will have no doubt. No man is worthy of worship, period. You want to avoid the Antichrist? Don't get pulled into worshiping some human. You see, the Antichrist will be fully revealed at the midpoint of the tribulation. He'll be the most popular person on earth. He'll be on the world stage for at least three and a half years before the moment that he declares himself as God. See, I'm concerned that many people, many believers will not recognize him because they're not looking for somebody they like. You see, you and I are going to like him. We're going to be surprised when we discover who he really is. We may even argue about it. Oh, it can't be. So let's begin with understanding what the title Antichrist really means. There are two prefixes that anti represents. One is the opposite of, the other is instead of. One of the problems that we have as a church is we focused on the opposite of, which made us think that the Antichrist will present as some really evil, supremely evil person that as much as Jesus went around doing good, he'll go around doing bad. Just as Jesus' character and personality was beautiful and attractive, the Antichrist's character and personality will be ugly and repulsive. 
As much as Jesus spoke only truth, the Antichrist will speak only lies. This emphasizes the opposite of Jesus too much. Instead, scriptures tell us the Antichrist is going to be more of an instead of Jesus. He'll look wonderful. He'll be charming. He'll be attractive. He'll be successful. He'll be the ultimate winner. He'll appear as an angel of light. In this sense, the Antichrist will be a satanic messiah instead of the true messiah, Jesus. Everything that Christ is for, he will be against. But that's not how he's going to present himself. He'll present himself as the best person other than Christ that you've ever seen or heard of in your life. Let me warn you again, you're going to initially like him. If you love Jesus, you're going to like the Antichrist because he's going to mimic him. Satan's a great deceiver. He'll look like Christ. He will not challenge Christ directly initially. In fact, he'll present himself as a follower. That's why we're told so many times, look at the fruit of someone's life if you want to know who they really are. He'll not challenge Christ directly. He may even seem to worship him. He's going to tell you what you want to hear. You're going to think that he's humble, caring, loving, and honest. He'll say what all of us want to hear. He'll bring back a world of peace, a booming economy, religious freedom, and everyone, it seems, will like him. He'll be the smartest, most engaging, smoothest-talking leader the world has ever seen. Let me warn you, you're going to like him because he mimics Christ, humble, and he does it very, very well. If you want to think about the kind of person that gets thrust onto the world scene, you need to be thinking more of somebody like Zelensky and less of somebody like Hitler. He will be liked. Don't take my word for it. There's plenty of warning in scriptures. Let's look at what the traits say about him. One, he will be an intellectual genius. Thus says the Lord your God, Ezekiel 28, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made great wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Successful, powerful, wealthy, intellectual genius. This will be one of his most alluring attractions. His mastermind will captivate an educated world. They will marvel at his knowledge and his acquaintance with the secrets of nature. His superhuman powers of perception, being able to read people. They'll stamp him as an intellectual genius and perhaps the greatest of all time. He'll know everything, it seems, about every culture. He'll be able to blend in. He'll be able to connect with everybody on a very deep personal level. People will feel like he gets them and that he's a familiar voice to them because he is. He'll be an oratorical genius. Daniel 7, 19, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, 
which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, teeth of iron, claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with his feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and seemed greater than its companions. The people were astonished at Christ's knowledge, at his doctrine. They said, where did this wisdom come from in Matthew 13? He's going to be the same counterfeiter. Let me rephrase that. He's going to be a counterfeiter. He'll have a mouth speaking great things. He'll have perfect command and flow of language. In fact, he'll probably speak fluently many, many languages. His oratory will not only gain attention, but command respect. He'll speak and people will likely be hypnotized or in a trance and not even realize it. Scriptures tell us he'll be a political genius. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain kingdoms by flatteries. He'll emerge from obscurity. By his diplomatic skill, he will win admiration and compel the cooperation of the political world. In the early stages of his career, he appears as a little horn. But it's not long before he climbs the ladder of fame and by his brilliant statesmanship ascends to the very top. Like the majority of politicians, he will not stoop to employ questionable message, message, uh, methods. In fact, he's going to do it by diplomatic skill and integrity and intrigue. Once he gains the top, he'll dare to challenge his authority. Kings will be his pawns and princes will be his playthings and they will willingly give up their power to him. He'll be a commercial genius. Daniel eleven forty two. He will stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Daniel eleven thirty eight. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stone and costly gifts. Under his regime, everything becomes nationalized. Nobody will able, be able to buy or sell anything without his permission. All commerce will be under his personal control, and it will be used for his own glory. The wealth of the world will be at his disposal. He'll be able to move world markets with a nod of his head. The fifth thing, he'll be a military genius. Isaiah 14, 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God and I'll set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man that made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who didn't let prisoners go home. You see, the Antichrist is going to have total control of the world. None will be able to stand in front of him militarily. He'll go forth conquering and to conquer, it said in Revelation 6. He'll sweep everything before him so the world will exclaim, who is unto the beast and who's able to make war with him? He will be such a strong military leader that no one could ever pick or predict that he'd be defeated. And his military exploits are not going to be carried out in some small corner of the world. 
He's spoken to the man who will shake kingdoms and make the entire earth tremble. He'll consolidate and control all armies and weapons that could be used against him. The sixth thing, he'll be a governmental genius. The ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate with naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. We'll get to this later. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. He's going to figure out how to get everybody into one mind, one government, and put his purpose, and they're going to give all their power to the beast. He'll wield together opposing forces. He'll unify conflicting agencies. Under his compelling power, the world powers will unite. The dream of the League of Nations or United Nations will be realized. Remember that in the Antichrist are the traits of all the forces of Roman, Greek, Medo-Persian, Babylonian empires coalesced. His personal embodiment of the world's political empires. The, the, the kings of the Roman Empire in its ultimate form will give their kingdoms to him. Finally, he will be a religious genius. He will initially support every religion and claim to be a champion of freedom of religion. He will be able to speak at very high intellectual levels about the scriptures and doctrines of all religions. Such wonders he will perform, such prodigious marvels he will work, the very elect could be deceived by him if God didn't protect them. The man of sin will combine in himself all the very genius of the human race. And what's more, he'll be more invested with all the wisdom and power of Satan. He'll be the master of science, acquainted with all the natural forces and may actually reveal long-held secrets that we don't know. But everyone's going to see a change at the midpoint of the tribulation. He'll proclaim himself to be God. Many will believe him. They'll worship him without any trouble. They'll see dramatic change. He'll demand that divine honors are rendered to him and he'll sit in the temple in the Holy of Holies, declare himself to be God and force that people treat him as God. He'll stun many people when he desecrates the holy place and declares himself as God, and many will not have seen it coming. In this masterpiece of Satan, says one, who will be concentrated intellectual greatness, sovereign power, human glory, combined with every species of sin, pride, tyranny, deceit, blasphemy, all the atheists and deists of every age of the world have failed to unite in any individual person until now. In other words, he's the embodiment of everything wrong in the world, both the empires and the people. So the Antichrist is coming and may well already be here. So we've got to be on our guard. God tells us to be on our guard. He who has an ear, let him hear, he says. He could fool even the elect if that were possible. Because God knows that we're fooled so easily. You may think it could never happen. But we are so easily deceived as people. It's been happening in the evangelical church all over America for the last 10 years. 
Over the last decade, many have watched Christians all over our nation fall to the idolatry of patriotism and conservative fever. They have, while claiming to worship Jesus, replaced him with the worship of a man. Many in U.S. evangelical churches have elevated a man to godlike status while claiming to do so in the name of Jesus and claiming to represent all believers. They fervently worship a man who seems to have difficulty manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, as if he was America's Savior, and for many of them he's become their Savior. The very people who should be most on guard for false worship have fallen to their own golden calf. Many in the U.S. evangelical church have elevated a man to godlike status while claiming to do so in the name of Jesus and claiming to represent all of us. It happens so quickly. Imagine how effective one who actually mimics Christ would be. A leader who appears to manifest love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. A leader who almost no one has anything negative to say about who is supported by everyone, all nations, all cultures, all tribes, who seems to love and care about everyone, who serves everyone humbly and with respect, who tells you what you want to hear and gives you what you think you deserve. What will you say when such a person looks at you and says, come and follow me? Will you be ready? God says, he who has ears, let him hear. Even the elect can be fooled. How do you prepare for this? If you think you can't be fooled, you're wrong. You're going to like him. You have to decide this day for every moment you take breath on this earth, you will never worship a human being, period. You will never be so invested in someone that you lose objectivity. You see, there's a fine line between support and worship. We need to wake up and be on guard. The only one worthy of any of our worship will return clearly as God. Never worship a man. We need to make sure that we're prayed up, that we're abiding in Christ. We need to hone the skill of paying attention to the Holy Spirit that's in us. The flesh part of us, our mind is going to really, really like him. Really like him. The spirit in us and our heart will be screaming, run. You won't know why. Run. The Antichrist is coming. But thank God, and most importantly, so is the Christ. Choose this day who you will serve and who is truly worthy of your worship. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you told us what was going to happen in advance. Thank you, God, that you told us to be on guard. I thank you, God, that you told us that no matter what happens in our future, no matter what happens to anybody, you are always in sovereign control. There's never a moment when you're not working out your plan. And God, that includes in our life too. Right now, whatever we're going through, you're in sovereign control. God, help us to learn to identify so closely with you, to abide with you in prayer and study so tightly to know you so well that we instantly recognize a fake. Help us, God, to stick true to what we know. Help us to not go chasing where the world goes chasing. Help us to be objective in the spirit. 
Help us to pay attention to what's happening. God, please help us to understand that the Antichrist will be liked by almost everyone. He's demonic, but he won't look that way. Help us, God, to make sure that you're the only one that we worship. You're the only one that gets our praise and our adoration. That we won't worship a man, whether he's a politician, a king, an artist, an actor, a ball player. If we raise our hands, God, let us raise it only for you. We love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray.